following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people, and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer, and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's, directions, or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. The reading is taken from Micah 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for, transgre- for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short effort which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing. Because of what you save, I will give it to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. This 
is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak in the name of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good evening and welcome to the latest in our sermon series on the book of Micah. Tonight we're looking at Micah chapter 6 and I think you might find it helpful to have your Bible in front of you as we go through it this evening. Now, if you've been following this series, you will know that the prophet Micah has spent the previous five chapters pointing out the many failings of the people of Israel and Judah. And Micah has pulled no punches as he's highlighted shocking behaviour from all corners of society. He's trained his laser-like gaze in turn on dodgy landowners and hopeless rulers and prophets and priests. And tonight the laser beam sweeps across the nation as a whole. So we begin in verse one with the Lord telling Micah to go out and plead his case. Now case is a translation of the Hebrew word reeve, which is a technical term for a legal dispute between two parties. And so commentators on Micah often point out that this opening scene is portrayed like a kind of courtroom drama. So we have the plaintiff bringing the case, which is the Lord God. And we have the defendant who are the people and Micah, the prophet of the Lord, is now his advocate or his barrister. So Micah starts, hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Micah is calling the mountains of the earth to act as witnesses to the case. Now, that might sound a bit fanciful, but the idea is there in scripture that the mountains have been around since the dawn of time. So they've witnessed everything. So they were there when God called Israel to be his people. They were there when he made his promises to Abraham. They were there when he gave the tablets of the law to Moses, when he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. The mountains have seen it all. Then the Lord addresses his people directly, actually rather gently. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And he then recounts all the different things he's done for them. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. I love Anne Miriam. It's really nice to have a woman cited along with Moses and Aaron who feature a lot. But it's also unusual and so it's probably symbolic. And there are various theories amongst academics as to what the symbolism is, such as Moses stands for the law and Aaron stands for the cultic or religious dimensions of their life and Miriam stands for prophecy. But whatever, the aim is to point at all of Israel's history and life with God. And then the Lord reminds the people of various incidents from Israel's history. He says, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered. Now, if you're not intimately familiar with the story of Balak, king of Moab, then take yourself off to chapter 22 of the book of Numbers. And there you can read the whole fabulous story complete with talking donkey and an angel of the Lord with a flaming sword. But in brief, Balak king of Moab was so scared of the people of Israel that he tried to get the prophet and diviner Balaam to curse them as they passed through Moab on their way to the promised land of Israel. But it turns out Balaam could only speak what God wanted him to say. So instead of cursing Israel, he ended up giving them a massive blessing instead. And various other significant places get name checked in verse five, such as Gilgal. Gilgal is the place where Israel camped once they crossed over the Jordan into the promised land of Israel. 
And Micah's audience would have known these stories, but they serve as a timely reminder that the Lord saved his people in the past more than once and could easily do so again. So the opening speech finishes with the people being called to remember the past, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Not just these deeds, but all the righteousness of God and all he's done. In other words, remember who God is. Remember the covenant. And in remembering it, return to it. So that's the Lord's case that's been pleaded there. Why are you complaining about me? Did I overburden you? Haven't I always been good to you? Didn't I choose you for my own? Didn't I make a covenant with you so that you'd be my people and I would be your God? What's your problem? So how did the people respond? Well, if they'd been listening to Micah as well as you have for the last few weeks, then they would remember that he had reminded them about disasters happening around them and his prophecy that Jerusalem could fall because its inhabitants had turned away from God and were not living out the way of the covenant. So clearly they need to repent and return to the Lord. So is that how they respond to this case? Well, not exactly. <laughs> In verse six, we hear a voice that's representing the whole of the people. And the voice says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Now on the face of it, this is a devout worshipper who's asking the kind of question he might ask of a priest if he wanted to enter the temple of the Lord, but he knew he'd done wrong. What's the right sacrifice to offer? So he starts off by saying, should I bring a burnt offering? Now a burnt offering was a big deal. It was like a really expensive sacrifice because the meat was all burnt up and there was nothing left for the worshipper, nothing left to take home for his tea. But pretty, pretty quickly, we realise this guy isn't meaning this genuinely because he starts to ramp it up madly. A burnt offering. Do you want calves a year old? Would that be enough? Or what else do you want? Do you want thousands of rams? Would that do? How about 10,000 rivers of oil? Will that satisfy you? No? How about my firstborn child? Is that what you want? Take my firstborn child. Will that make you happy? Is that what you want from us, God? And Micah is having none of this at all. Verse eight, he says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. In other words, don't pretend you don't know what God wants of you. You know the law, you know the covenant, and you've heard the priests and the prophets every generation telling you, you know what's required of you. But okay, if you're gonna play games, let me summarize the heart of it for you. Verse eight, and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And there it is, one of the most famous verses, one of the best loved verses in the Bible. You've probably seen it on cards and posters. It gets embroidered on cushions, put on bumper stickers. People have it tattooed on their arms. So let's have a closer look at what it meant in its original context. Okay, three commands. First, to do justly or literally in the Hebrew, to do justice. Mishpat, or justice, was central to Israel's covenant with God, and thus to their identity. Justice requires the weak and innocent are protected from being exploited by the strong and ruthless. It's fundamental to the whole way of life God set out for them. It's both an individual and a collective imperative. It's not an optional extra, it's a must. Second, to love mercy. Now, the Hebrew word rendered here as mercy is hesed, 
which is almost untranslatable. It's often rendered as loving kindness. But imagine the sum of every word you can think of that's a kind, caring love. When Tereira spoke last week about the overwhelming, gracious, saving, protective love of God, when she gave that picture of chicks sheltering from the rain under the wings of their mother, that's Hesed. But it can also be translated as loyalty or faithfulness, with overtones of gracious generosity from the strong to the weak. So Mishpat and Hesed, these are both divine qualities. They tell us what God's like. But the thing is, once Israel was called to be God's covenant people, they should be mirroring those qualities too. And number three, to walk humbly with your God. And that humbly gets translated in various ways too. I mean, it could humbly, modestly, attentively, circumspectly. But the essence is walking in God's ways, living in line with the will of God, because you know that that is what will make you flourish. But these aren't three separate instructions. They go hand in hand. God shows justice and love and faithfulness to his people. And if those things characterise the way they live their life, they will be walking humbly with their God. Unfortunately, Micah has just spent five chapters showing how spectacularly badly they failed to do this. He's berated the rich for exploiting the poor. He's attacked the rulers for failing to give them justice and condemned priests and false prophets for corruption. And now here in verses 10 to 12, he makes clear the failures aren't limited to those at the top of the tree. He charges the people with violence, with deceit, with cheating the poor in the marketplace. And the rest of chapter six consists of Micah warning that because they fail to change their ways, they risk bringing disaster on themselves. Okay, that's a pretty quick canter through Micah six. But let's take a step back and see what we can take for this from this for ourselves. First, I think there's a timely reminder that we need to be on the alert all the time for some of the caricatures that abound about the Old Testament. I mean, I still hear comments to the effect that before Jesus, all religion was just legalism. So all that mattered was you have to follow some elaborate set of rules. Whereas once Jesus came, religion didn't matter. It was just having a true heart. Now, I'm sure you realise it was way more nuanced than that. I mean, for a start, of course, Jesus was born a Jew. So what we think of as the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible contains the scriptures that Jesus knew and used. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses, Aaron and Miriam, of course, is the God who raised Jesus from the dead, our God. And this passage from Micah makes clear it was never enough to follow a set of rules or instructions as though the covenant were like a contract with a builder. I mean, that wasn't the way the law functioned for God's people. No, they did the Lord joyfully. It was a loving response to God's hesed and mishpat, his loving kindness and justice. They knew they should be showing justice and faithfulness and loving kindness themselves to mirror God's. But here Micah is saying they're not doing that. We have God's people keeping the law superficially, doing just enough, but certainly not showing hesed and mishpat. And when Micah called them out, their response was to try to appease God to buy him off rather than address and repent of the deep failings, ethical failings, which reveal, of course, a deep spiritual failing. And their deepest failure was a failure to understand the nature of God, which, of course, was reflected in their covenant and underpinned the covenant. And that's really a form of idolatry. Now, if you're new to all of this, you may well still be trying to work out who God is. 
And if that's you and you'd like to know more, do get in touch with us through Facebook or through our website. We'd love to talk to you some more. But the truth is that some of us have been Christians for a long time, still need to remember that the habit of misunderstanding God didn't stop sometime back in 700 BC. In fact, I think one of the besetting human failings is a tendency repeatedly to try to fashion God in our own image. Do you ever do that? I mean, I don't suppose you've built a golden calf in your back garden, although if you have, get rid of it straight away, because trust me, it's not going to end well. But how often do you stop and think about the image of God you've got tucked away at the back of your mind or somehow there in your subconscious? On some level, do you perhaps imagine a stern, unbending God who judges most harshly, as it happens, those people you also disapprove of most harshly? Or do you imagine a God who loves everyone, so nothing else matters? Or are you someone whose life experience has left you struggling to feel worthy or valued? And if so, do you perhaps picture a God who's all judgment, no loving kindness at all? The heart of today's reading, indeed the heart of Micah, I think, is in that wonderful verse 8. What was required of God's covenant people is what's required of us too. The church is a new covenant community called to follow Jesus. And justice and love and faithfulness are essential to the way we live as Christian disciples. The theologian Paula Gooder points out that we do need all three. There's like a kind of three-legged stool. If any of the three is missing, it falls over. We've heard from Micah of the centrality of justice. And for us in St Nick's, as we begin to the process of gathering together as a physical community after a year of COVID, we know we need to figure out how best to ensure a commitment to justice is at the heart of everything we do. Because if we have love and faithfulness, but no justice. In effect, we've privatised our faith and we've domesticated our vision of God. But you know, just like Micah's audience, it's really important we don't see doing justice as a burden laid on us by God or something we do to make God love us or make God happy. Because I hate to break it to you, but God doesn't love you because you're lovable, although I'm sure you are, or because you try to live a good life, and I'm sure you do, and that's great. But God loves you because God is love, and you can't earn that. The reason that we love and serve others is as a response to the love of God for us. We love because we were loved first. So justice is grounded in love. But then again, if we have justice and faithfulness, but not love, then we're in the territory of 1 Corinthians 13, when the Apostle Paul says, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. But then finally, if we have justice and love but no faithfulness, then will we walk humbly with God in the longer term? Or will our faith be a flash in the pan? So justice, love and faithfulness are every bit as relevant now as they were 2,700 years ago. But let's not get too hung up on how to do them. I mean, I could do my best to make myself be kinder and less selfish and more concerned about other people, and I should. But the biggest change comes when I surrender to the love of God and let that change me. Because knowing we're loved and saved and held by God changes everything. It makes us walk humbly, attentive to the one who loves us and holds us in being. So as we approach this Easter, let's 
consciously step into the love of God. Let's ask God to transform us so that we joyfully become a people who act justly, love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.